Welcome to the Central Christian Church Podcast. We pray this message helps you find and follow Jesus. If you would like to connect with us more, please visit us at centralsj.org. All right. Well, hey, if you have your Bible, I want to invite you to turn back to the book of Romans as we'll be jumping back into Romans chapter 9. You guys excited for Romans? Hey, all right, all right. Also, in other news, how about those Niners? Hey, let's go. Hey, the nail biter, but pulled it off. Well, hey, today we're going to jump into Romans chapter 9. And we concluded Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11. Many scholars would say is a parenthetical section of Romans. In other words, they would say there's parentheses around these three chapters. In other words, you could jump from Romans chapter 8 and directly into Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 8, we just concluded. Paul's talked to us about the ramifications of the gospel, what it means to be a believer in the gospel, how that plays out in your life and mind spiritually. And then Romans 12 picks up how how the gospel is actually lived out in a very practical way in the life of the believers. They would say Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11 are not essential to the overall flow of the book of Romans. However, I would say I would disagree. Uh, Romans is, is vital, all of Romans. A uh, couple reasons why. One, 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all of Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God, so that you, may be fully equipped for every good work. So when we come to chapter 9 today, we realize that this is written to instruct us. It's written to teach us. For some of us, it's going to bring some correction. For all of us, it's going to bring training so that we can become the people that God created us to be. Uh, Not only do I think it's important for that reason, as if that weren't enough, uh, but Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11 are some of the deepest wells of Scripture as Paul begins to lay out an understanding of this doctrine of predestination and election, which I think is vital for all of us just to have kind of a working understanding of what that is. Not that we'll ever really fully wrap our mind around it, uh, but just to have somewhat of an understanding of it. Because we're going to come to some difficult difficult passages uh, that whenever you read them at first glance, you might say, what? Like, God says that? Like, how does this fit into God's love? And how does this fit into God's, God's character? And and you might be thinking, well, like, what are you, what are you talking about? Well, here's a little snapshot of where we'll be headed next week. Uh, Romans 9, uh, 11 through 13 says this. It says, Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I've loved and Esau I have hated. What do you do with that? How, how do you interpret that? And hyper-Calvinists will say, well, see, there you go. There you have it. Case in point, uh, God does all the saving. Therefore, it is not essential for you to support global missions. Therefore, uh, the, the, the great commission of Jesus to go and make disciples and personal evangelism, it's really all up to God anyway. He's going to save who he wants to save. He's going to condemn whoever he wants to condemn. And so let's just leave it up to God. And I uh, could not disagree more, but it's important for us to know what do you what do you do with that? How do you interpret that? And so we'll be unpacking some of that as we move through this amazing book, the book of Romans. But we're not getting to that today, so you have to come back. Um, 
In the overflow, uh, overall flow of Romans, just want to kind of give a snapshot of where we've been uh, in Romans chapter 8. Uh, Romans chapter 8 begins with this. It says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, which is awesome. Um, Romans 8.31 says this, what then shall we say in response to this? And, and what he's referring to here, he's already made a case how, how you've, you've died to the law. The law no longer has authority over you. The law can no longer condemn you. He says you've been adopted as a child of God, that you are now heirs with Christ, co-heirs with Christ. Like not just adopted, not like second-class citizens in the kingdom of heaven, but full heirs uh, with God. Like you're a child of God, you're a daughter of God, you're a son of God. Like, and he goes on and on about all these wonderful realities that now you possess as a follower of Jesus. And he says, what shall we say in response to this? I mean, if God is for us, who could be against us? It could accurately be interpreted, since God is for us, who could be against us? And God is so, so for you. That's why we close every service with that passage. But then he closes Romans 8 with this. Romans 8, 35 through 39 says this, and then we're going to jump into what we're studying today. Uh, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any power, neither heights nor depths, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And everyone said amen. And then we get to Romans 9, and everyone says, oh my, what are we, what are we doing here? And he, so he does make this this hard turn. So he starts Romans 8, there is no condemnation. He closes with there'll never be any separation. But then we get to Romans 9, and he does kind of take a turn. And, And the reason why is that Paul, as he's writing to this church in Rome, he's assuming that the audience has some questions. He's assuming, he knows that in the church in Rome, there's some, some Jewish people. He knows there's some people from Israel that have, have migrated to Rome. And, and now they're saying, well, well, God adopted me and that's tremendous. God chose me and that's beautiful. And, and my salvation's secure. That's wonderful. But he also chose Israel. He also adopted Israel. And you'd think if if the train of logic would hold, then Israel would be like this strong, mega powerhouse of Christians, and, and they know that's not true. And so Paul is beginning to address some of these questions and concerns about Israel as we come to Romans chapter 9. And so Paul addresses that in Romans 9, 10, and 11, and then we're going to get to Romans chapter 12 through 16, where it's very practical how we live out the gospel. So for today, we're going to tackle the first five verses of Romans chapter 9. And so if you have your Bible, again, invite you to turn there. If not, we'll have it on the screen. Uh, I would invite you to stand to your feet with me, if you could, in honor of God's word. And, uh, and if you're not working out today, this will count for your squats. All right, here we go. <laughs> Romans chapter 9 and verse 1 reads this. He says, I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption as sons. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all, forever praised. 
Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. And God, we thank you whenever we read your word. It's not just like reading any other piece of literature. But God, your word's alive. And God, you have the power and the authority to speak to us through any text we study, and especially something so powerful and profound as Romans. So God, I pray you would do it today. I pray you'd speak to every individual and minister to them at the point of need that they're carrying in this room today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can go ahead and have a seat. I want to draw out three principles for us today from this text that we just read. Uh, the points are going to be a little bit longer. Uh, there's going to be some subpoints, and so my, my hope is that you're taking some notes. Uh, if you have a program that you received on the way in, then you have, have the notes there. There's also notes on our Central Christian Church app. Uh, you can see my notes and follow along there if you'd like. And my hope is that you would reference these at a later date whenever you are studying the book of Romans for yourself and uh, be able to reference and refresh uh, what we're studying here. And so when we come to Romans chapter 9 and verses 1 through 5, what we just read is a little bit of a preamble to what Paul's going to begin to unpack in this chapter and really the next three chapters. What he's doing here is expressing to us his heart for his people, his people of Israel, not just his own family members, although his family members would certainly be included in this, but the whole nation of Israel, the whole Jewish community that is God's chosen people. And so Paul has a huge heart for, for the nation of Israel. Paul has a huge heart for the lost. And if the man of God has a heart like that after God, then we, the people of God, should have the same heart as well. So here's the first point if you're taking notes. Personal passion for the lost leads to personal interaction with the lost. A personal passion for the lost will lead us to personal interaction with the loss, but it all starts with passion. And Paul just laid out for us what he's passionate about. He's laid out for us what drives him, what consumes his thoughts, what, what motivates him day to day. And I just want to ask you, what are you passionate about? It's been said that if you're passionate about everything, then you're passionate about nothing. But when someone is passionate, they have a singularity of focus. When someone is passionate, there is power that drives them to the desired goals. Nothing great, nothing worthwhile, nothing significant in life is accomplished without passion. Passion wins championships. Passion pushes past fatigue and pain. Passion moves a person outside of their comfort zone. Passion refuses to make excuses. Passion is not merely intellectual, nor is passion merely emotional. Passion is an energy that drives the whole body. It is heart, mind, soul, and strength focused in a very specific direction. And for the Apostle Paul, his passion is reaching people with the gospel. And Paul is so passionate about it, it is shocking how passionate he is. And he knows his passion is going to be shocking to the audience in Rome. And so he gives some qualifying statements. He wants you to know, he wants me to know, he wants the church of Rome to know that what he's saying is not hyperbole. It's not an exaggeration. This is really how he feels. And here's what he says. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. He wants, he wants them to know, like, hey, this is real. This is true. I just, it's going to be shocking, but this is, this is really who I am. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed. I, I wish that I could be cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my own race, the people of Israel. Paul has a great sorrow over the loss. He has unceasing anguish over those who do not know Jesus. And can I just ask, 
When's the last time you wept over our city? When's the last time you wept over that lost coworker, that lost student that you sit next to, that lost person that you interact with on a daily basis? When's the last time that you wept over your family who does not know Jesus in a way that will get them into heaven? Paul says, I'm a man of great sorrow. I have unceasing anguish in my heart for those who don't know Jesus. It's what drives him. It's what motivates him. It's what compels him. It's his passion. There's a guy by the name of General William Booth. He, he started an organization that you've probably heard of called the Salvation Army. And General Booth sent some Salvation Army soldiers to the United States. And they, they began to work in some of the largest cities and some of the darkest ghettos. And they were at work for three years. And there were three, three years of work, three years of, of sharing the gospel, three years of doing the deal, and, and really nothing to show for it. And they wrote a telegram to General William Booth and it said this, it said, it said, it won't work. We've tried everything. The gospel is not received here. Have you ever felt like that? I know I have. I mean, you live in the Bay, I live in the Bay Area. We, we live in a place where the, sometimes we can say, I, it won't work here. Like, God, it's not working here. God, we, we've tried everything. God, I don't, God, God it, it's not working. I don't know what to do. To which William Booth sent a two-word response via telegram just two days later. And he said this, try tears. There's something about a heart of an individual, more so than just going through the motions, that compels them, that makes the gospel compelling, that, that motivates them, that, 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 that invites people to respond to the gospel when reaching the lost is no longer an obligation, but it's a passion. It changes everything. You know, the reality is until we're brokenhearted over the loss, we'll do very little to lead them to Jesus. And this is shocking, the way Paul feels. He says, man, I wish I, wish I myself could be cut off. If it meant I, I went to hell and they went to heaven, then, then I'm willing to do it, which obviously no one is able to do. Everyone must come to a saving faith in Jesus on their own. But Paul's saying, man, I'm, I'm willing to do it. And can I just make a confession to you? As I was studying for this, uh, I was very bothered by how unbothered I am by the lost in our city. I was very bothered by how emotionally unmoved I am to the reality that tens of thousands of people are going to hell all around us. And I call them my neighbor, and I call them fellow citizens. And, and, and what once compelled us me and my family to move to the Bay Area, because you probably know this, you're, we live in one of the most, un, not one of, the most unreached pocket of America. The most unchurched demographic is right here in the Bay Area. And I thought, man, let's do it. Let's, let's go. Like, God, we're going to bring him Jesus. And I don't know if I'm like the frog that's gotten cooked in the water over time, but I'm like, well, they don't want to go to heaven. They want to go to, I don't know. You know, and I just become very, very um, cold to it, honestly. And so my prayer for myself and my prayer for you in 2024 is that we would be moved by what moves God's heart. And certainly he's compelled by those kids that are here in our city that don't know him. And to use the words of William Booth, maybe it's time for me to start trying some tears. Allow it to move me emotionally.
May your passion for the lost lead us to interaction with the lost. I want to get very practical for just a moment, and uh, well, not just a moment. My hope is that it's always practical, uh, but for sure it is right now. Um, so, so how do we? What do we do with this? How do we pull this out of the sky? What does it? What does it mean for us tomorrow? What does this mean for us today? Here's what I'd like you to do. In, in your notes, um, you, there's one line that says, "My one friend." And so we've heard me talk about my one friend. And so, so your one friend is someone who you interact with on a regular basis. And so, in other words, it's not your like for me and my brother who lives in Missouri. Like it's not. It can't be him. Uh, it, it, it's not uh, a family member. It's not, uh, it has to be some, it can be a family member, but you have to just interact with them on a regular basis, not someone who lives in a different state or someone that you don't talk to, but at Christmas. Uh, so who's someone that you interact with on a regular basis? Could be a coworker, could be a fellow student, uh, could be a neighbor, uh, could be someone on the ball team, uh, could be a parent that you interact with because of the ball team. You sit in the bleachers for hours at a time and you know who they are and you know that they don't have a relationship with Jesus. And, and so who's your one friend? And here's what I would like for everyone to do right now. Just write down the name of that one person. And if you're not taking notes, maybe text yourself. Who's your one friend that you're going to be trying to, to invite Jesus to give you an opportunity to lead them to Christ this, this year? And you say, well, man, how do I do that? I'll, I'll, sure, I'll write down my one friend. So everyone got, got a one friend in mind at least? Got one in mind? Got one written down? Yes, okay, good. Um, now, what do we do with that? Like, what do we do? Uh, how do we minister to them, our neighbors, our coworkers, our family, our friends? Uh, this is found in Luke chapter 10. Uh, Dr. El Solzo, Ed Solzo, actually laid this out in this, this kind of five-point formula, so it's credit to him. But five things you can do for your one friend. You do these five things in 2024, uh, they're, they're going to find and follow Jesus because of your influence in their life. And here's what you're going to do. Number one, I'm going to pray for them. Pray for them daily. Jesus said this, no one comes to the Father unless God draws them. So God, would you draw them? God, I'm praying. God, would you, would you bring them to a saving knowledge of you? You're going to pray for them daily. Second thing you're going to do is bless them. And this isn't like a, a blessing thing like this. It's more like find something good and say it. Like, like find something positive about them. And you might think, well, man, my one friend, he's a real jerk. And, uh, and I would say, well, that's a great one friend to pick. Uh, but... But, but I would also say this, if someone's a real jerk, they know they're a jerk uh, because they are often told, you're a jerk. Uh, but, but don't let that be you. You find something positive about them. You, you find something positive, whether it's their hair, it's their glasses, whether it's the way they, they handled that project, whether they handled that interaction, you, whatever it is, you find something positive and say it. There's, let other people point out the negative. You're going to bless them. And third thing you're going to do, you're going to fellowship with them. You could, you could write this, hang out with them. It's just you're going to spend time with them because a, a personal passion for the lost is going to lead to, to interaction with the lost. One of our, our staff values, we talk about it often as a team, is, is we can't have an impact if we don't have contact. And so if you're going to have an impact with people who don't know Jesus, we've got to have contact with them. And so it's fellowship with them. It's lunches. It's coffee. It's, it's, it's time on the golf course. It's, it's hanging out with them. And then you're going you're gonna to help them. You're going to find something practical. What, what could I do that would practically help them? And so if they're pulling weeds and, man, you go get on the old scrubby clothes and pull some weeds with them. But find practical ways just to, to help them. And then the last thing you do, fifth thing, you're going to tell them. Jesus said it this way. Whenever he sent out the 72, he said, 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 proclaim to them that the kingdom of heaven has come. And so what that means is basically you tell them about what God's done for you, that there is a rescuer. And here, here's the good news. You don't have to have all the answers. A lot of times that paralyzes us. A lot of times we think, well, what if they say this and I don't have an answer to that? 
Well, one, that would be a great thing because it would invite you to study with them and say, man, I don't know, but let's figure that out together. But really what you're inviting, what telling them is, is saying, man, I don't have all the answers, but let me just tell you what God's done for me. I used to be this way, but now I'm this way. I'm just saying God's changed my life, and I, I, I think he'll do it for you too. You just lead them there. So here's what you're going to do. you got one friend. I invite you to this. Every day pray for them. When you get the opportunity, bless them. Find something good about it. Say, them, say, it, say it to them. Hang out with them. Fellowship with them. Then help them in practical ways. And then just tell them. Tell them what God's done for you. And I guarantee if you do this, you commit this. You, you, like, you don't just take this as, oh, this is a great sermon, whatever. And then you go about your day. You know, not that you ever do that, but... But, but you do this. If you do this thing, I'm just telling you, God's going to change some people's lives and not just one person. But why not a whole family? Why not your family? Why not the whole neighborhood? I mean, who knows what the Lord, what the Lord could do through it. And isn't that the heart of God? I mean, if, you've, if, you, if you're a parent here, you've ever lost a child, like your child's wandered off and you don't know where they are. Uh, I mean, you know the panic of that. You, you know the emotion of that. You know the passion that you feel. Like I, nothing else in the world matters besides finding my kid. And I think God's hardwired that into us so we can have a little bit of a glimpse into his heart for lost kids as well. It consumes the heart of God and it consumed the heart of Paul. And I think God's just inviting us to that today. Second observation is that affiliation with the things of God is not the same as salvation through the gospel. Affiliation with the things of God is not the same as salvation through the gospel. Sometimes people have the idea that because they hang around Christians that they, they are a Christian, and that's not true. Other people have the idea because they go to a Christian school or they went to a Christian school that automatically they're, they're Christians, and, and I would say that's not true. Uh, I did my undergraduate study and my graduate study at Christian universities, and, and I'm just telling you, not everyone that goes to Christian universities are Christians. I've, I've seen it uh, with my own eyes. And a lot of times we can think, man, uh, because I, I went to that church, or, or oftentimes in spiritual conversations, you'll be talking to someone, or you, you probably had this. I was talking to someone just the other day, and I said, man, how, we're in, in the midst of a conversation, it just led to this point. And I said, man, how are you doing spiritually? Like, what's your spiritual life like? He says, oh, it's good. I'm Catholic. And I was like, well, that's cool, but, like, that's not what I asked. <laughs> how are you doing spiritually, you know? And a lot of times people associate that. Well, how are you doing spiritually? Well, I'm Methodist, or I'm Presbyterian, or I'm Assemblies of God, or I'm Baptist, or I go to a Christian church, so obviously I'm a Christian. And I would just say affiliation with the things of God are not the same as salvation through the gospel. And sometimes, if we're not careful, we'll confuse the two. We'll think because we have affiliation with the things of God, it actually blinds us to our need for God. And sometimes it can blind us to our need for salvation that only comes through the gospel. And that's what Paul is saying has happened to the Jews. That's what's happened to his own people, the people of Israel. Here's what he says, Romans 3, uh, 9, 3 through 5 says this, For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off for the sake, uh, from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Check this out. Theirs is the adoption as sons. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs the patriarchs. And from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. 
And if you were to, Paul's like, I, I, I asked them, hey, are you guys right with God? And they're like, yeah, we've, we've got the adoption. Yeah, we got Abraham, our ancestry. We got this Isaac and Jacob. Yeah, we're good. We received temple worship. We got the covenants. And, and Paul's saying, man, you guys had all these things that God did for you to draw you to himself. But they were not salvation in of themselves. And he's really saying, man, they had this, all this affiliation with the things of God. But they missed the heart of God in the midst of it. They didn't respond in faith to what God did, and therefore they, they missed it. They had the adoption. And this is true. Out of all the nations of the world, God chose Israel. He's adopted them as, as his own. He says theirs is the divine glory. And so they saw the glory of God. If you're with us as we studied Exodus um, it, whenever that God led the nation of Israel out of Egypt, how did he lead them? He led them with a, a, a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. Like they saw the tangible, palpable glory of God leading them. Uh, on the mountain at, at Mount Sinai, uh, they're like, let God speak to us. And so there the nation of Israel was at the base of this mountain, two million people. And, and all of a sudden this cloud begins to come and descend on this mountain. There's flashes of lightning. There's like this earthquake and there's fire that begins to descend on Mount Sinai. And it's like shaking and God, very God, speaks audibly to the entire nation of Israel at this time. Two million people. God never talked to anybody like that before, has never talked to anybody like that since. And the nation of Israel said, don't ever let God do that again. Because <laughs> that was terrifying. I think he might kill us. But they saw the glory of the Lord in, in a powerful way. When Solomon was dedicating the temple, the glory of God filled the temple in such a palpable way that the priests, as they're ministering there and, and doing the sacrifice, they begin to just lay face down because the presence of God was so thick that they couldn't continue to function. I mean, the nation of Israel saw the glory of God. And how about you? The shocking reality of Israel teaches us that we can see the glory of God. We can experience the glory of God, but yet not be changed by the God of glory. And that's a very sobering thought. He says theirs is the covenants, and they had the covenant, covenant given to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the covenant given to David. And they thought, man, we got this, so we, we got this affiliate, so we're, we're good. And it wasn't the case. The receiving of the law, and out of all the nations, again, God chose to give the nation of Israel the law. Like, this is how you, you, you conduct yourself in a manner that's pleasing to me. God spoke to them, and God still speaks to us today, right? And sometimes we can hear God speak, but yet not allow it to change, change our hearts. And he says, theirs is the temple worship, and, and again, God laid out for the nation of Israel. This is how you're to approach me. This is how you're to worship me. And it's interesting to know that the nation of Israel, they knew how to worship God. They knew how to access the presence of God. And if we're not careful, we'll do the same thing. We can be, become so intellectually driven that we know how to access the presence of God. We know what God's word says. Yes, we're supposed to enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. We're, we, we, we know how to access the presence of God, but are we allowing the presence of God to access our hearts and change change our lives. That's what he's saying, the nation of Israel, they had all this stuff, but it didn't result in salvation because they thought affiliation with the things of God would lead to salvation. But Paul's saying that's not, that's not true. They had the promises and they're beautiful promises. Theirs was the patriarchs. I mean, they, they got Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and they say, hey, how, how's your spiritual life? It's great. I got my father's Abraham of the bloodline. 
And Paul's like, that's not, that's not my question. And for many of us here, you have a godly heritage. You have, you have a grandma that prayed for you. You got parents that, that pray for you. Some of you are here just because of your, your parents, because, because either they drug you here or like you feel this moral obligation. I got to go, you know, and, and, and I, I was there too. I, my hand's up for that one too. But, and praise God for godly heritage. I'm not knocking that in any way. But I'm just saying, my parents' faith can't save me. I, I got to come to this point of surrender in my own life. And for the nation of Israel, the same was true for them. Praise God for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But, but, but there, it wasn't about the lineage. It was about the faith of, of the patriarchs. And, and honestly, our godly heritage can, like, keep us out of hell a little, keep us from going there so soon. I mean, I think, I think one of the reasons I'm here is because my mama prayed for me. My grandma prayed for me diligently and fasted in, like, years. And so, I, praise God, I, I've probably been to hell a long time ago. But, but they can't save us, you know what I'm saying? We're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And all of us have to come to that, that place. It says, and from them was traced the human ancestry of Christ. I mean, Jesus was born in Israel. Jesus ministered in Israel. He was a Jew. And he says, who, who is God over all forever praised. Amen. All that to say they had all this opportunity and all those things were God's way of drawing Israel to himself but they, for whatever reason, rejected him. So it's, it's easy to allow affiliation with something to become a substitute for, for salvation. But affiliation with the things of God is not the same as salvation through, through the gospel. And I would just ask this. Has there been a moment when you gave your heart to Christ in response to that, you experienced the miracle-working power of God in your life, where he changed you into a different person as you took steps of obedience towards him. I mean, you may not have recognized it in the moment, but in a matter of weeks, you saw true life change happen in your life. I mean, your heart towards God was different. Your heart towards people was different. Your heart towards the word of God changed. The way you processed life, the way you viewed the realities of situations that you you, would, you normally respond that way. Now you respond this way. Have you, have you experienced that? Have you been changed by God? And if you haven't, I would encourage you to seriously consider whether or not you're a Christian, whether or not you have placed your faith in Jesus in such a way that leads to salvation, or if you just assume that affiliation with the things of God is the same as salvation through the gospel. Here's why that's so important. Jesus said this, unless you're born again, you cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven. And so he's saying you, you got to have this encounter with God in such a way that it changes you to where you're a different person. Paul put it this way. If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. The new has, has come. Have you experienced that? Would your buddies that knew you maybe your whole life, would they say, have you, man, I remember when this thing started to change in your life. Have you had that experience? I hope, I hope you have. And if you haven't, man, God would love for you to have that experience. He wants everyone to know him, wants everyone to come to the saving knowledge of him. And so he's more than willing. It just takes two to tango when it comes to that. So if you have not, man, I would encourage you to, to really lean into that. Because affiliation with the things of God is not the same as salvation through the gospel. There's only one person that can get you into heaven, and that's putting your faith in Jesus Christ alone. Third and final point is this. 
What you keep by rejecting Christ cannot compare with what you gain by receiving Christ. What you keep by rejecting Christ cannot compare with what you gain by receiving Christ. A lot of people would say, man, you know what? I would go all in with Jesus, but ah, I just don't want to give that up. Or man, I would go all in. I want to be a, a Christian, but man, I don't, ah, I don't know if I can, I can let that go. And if that's you, I would say, unfortunately, what you think is freedom is actually bondage and slavery to sin. But Jesus has the power to set you free, and he's more than willing to do it. And until you surrender it to him, you're going to miss out on all the good things that God has for you. And not only knowing what your purpose is in life, but having something that actually satisfies, something that actually, actually fills your life. And I would say this too, not just for those that, that aren't yet followers of Jesus, but for those of us that, that are followers of Jesus, if we're not careful, we can glamorize the past, what, what life was like before we surrendered to Jesus, and glamorize it and think it was awesome and forget how hollow and empty and, and how unsatisfying it was. If it, if it was satisfying, then we wouldn't be looking for something else. But ultimately, only life that's anchored in Christ really satisfies we did a memorial here yesterday for uh, a pillar at Central, a pillar in the Central family. Uh, many of you know her, uh, and also many of you don't. You never met her because uh, she hasn't been back to church since um, the pandemic, since 2020, uh, because of uh, some health concerns. But Noni Noble went home to be with Jesus, and uh, we did her memorial yesterday, and I was, I was preparing for the memorial. I was reminded of uh, several moments, actually. She did this a few times, but she would remind me about uh, a time in her life that was a, a struggle. And she felt like the Lord told her uh, to take Psalm 103 like medicine. And she did that. She memorized Psalm 103, and she said, every day I would quote it. And here's what Psalm 103 says. It says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that's within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And here she'd anchor into this. And forget not all of his benefits. It's important for us to remember all the benefits of the Lord. And she, she'd put her hand, finger in my face. She'd say, Tim, what's the first thing that, that people do whenever they get a new job? Well, they want to know what the benefits are. And she's like, let me just tell you the benefits of following Jesus. He forgives all your sins. He heals all your diseases. He crowns you with, with salvation. And she'd just go on and on. And she'd say, oh, Pastor Tim, hasn't he been good to us? And I think it's important for us to remember all the benefits that the Lord's given us. And, and here's what I want to highlight. Everything that we just talked about that God did for Israel to draw, him, draw Israel to himself, he's now done for you as followers of Jesus. First thing we saw is theirs is the adoption, and he did adopt Israel, but you've been adopted too. We read about this in, in Romans chapter 8 and how, how you've been adopted as a child of God, that you're on equal, equal status uh, Paul would put it this way, you're co-heirs with Christ. He puts it this way in Ephesians 5. He says, long ago, he decided to adopt us into his family through Jesus Christ. And what delight and pleasure he took in planning this. He didn't do it begrudgingly. He didn't say, well, all right, Mario, I guess you can come. Yeah, come on in. All right, Glenda. Yeah, well, yeah, well, yeah come on. All right, Paul. Yeah, sure, you too. You know, no, he didn't do that. He took delight in it. He adopted you. And what delight he took in this. That's my child. That's my daughter. I'm so proud of them. Let me show you a picture. I mean, I think that's how the heart of God is for you. He's adopted you. As followers of Jesus, we've been, we've been adopted. Not only that, but, but the nation of Israel saw the glory of God. But as children of God, you get to inherit 
the glory of God. He says this, in fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of his glory. We don't just experience it. We don't just see it. But you're an heir with Christ. And you get to inherit the glory of God. Are you kidding me? It's one of your benefits. The covenants. We looked at Israel and how they... God made all these covenants with Israel, and God's promise, I would say, still stands for Israel. But, but he made a new covenant, a new covenant with you. At the Last Supper, Jesus lifts up a cup of juice, a cup of wine. He breaks bread. They, they do the Last Supper, and he, he says, this, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. And you're an heir of a, a new covenant with Christ. Hebrews 10, 16 says, this is the new covenant that I will make with my people on that day, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their heart and I'll write them on their minds. And as followers of Jesus, he's, he's done that for us. We have the Holy Spirit abiding in us, helping us, knowing what God would want in given situations. The promises, Israel received wonderful promises, but you've received wonderful promises as followers of Jesus. Look at 2 Peter 1, 4. It says, because of his glory and his excellence, he's given us great and precious promises. You say, well, like what? Well, man, there's so many to count. I mean, like, where do we begin? In Matthew 7, he says this. He says, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you'll find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. Another passage, Jesus said this. He says, hey, if, if you, like, like, how many of you, if you're, you, your kids ask for, they're, they're, they're hungry, it's, it's 12 o'clock, like, Dad, will you make me a peanut butter and jelly sandwich? How many of you parents would say, well, here's a snake, you can eat on this? Like, you wouldn't do that? Or, man, I'm, I'm thirsty. Well, hey, here's a scorpion, let it bite you. Like, on your worst day, you don't do that. And Jesus said this, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your kids, man, how much more will your heavenly Father give you the Holy Spirit if you ask him? I mean, you want the presence of God in your life? You, you want God, very God, taking residence in you? Jesus gave us this promise. All you got to do, God, would you, would you help me? Would you give me the Holy Spirit? Would you fill me afresh with your Holy Spirit today? The promise is he'll do it because he's a good father. And the list of promises goes on and on. Then the ancestries, and again, nation of Israel thought they were good because they had this bloodline of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to make them right with God. But it's always been about walking in the same faith as Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. We read about this a little bit in Hebrews eleven thirty nine. 39. He says, says, these were commended for their faith. So these heroes of the faith, they were commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. Verse 40, God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. They're made perfect by the same faith that saves you, the same faith that saves me. And then Hebrews 12, 1 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, since those ancestries, since those heroes, since those pillars of the faith have ran their race so well as examples for us to walk in faith, he says, now it's time for us to run our race well. So it says, let us then throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles us and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. You've received an amazing heritage, amazing lineage that now you carry on. And lastly, the Messiah, Jesus. John 17, 3 says, now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. No other covenant has ever provided this pathway for you to know God, to have direct access. You don't have to 
Praise God, we don't have to like slaughter goats up here anymore, or sheep, or anything weird like that. Like you have direct line to God because of what Jesus has done for you. You can know God in Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. I'm just saying whatever you've given up to embrace Christ cannot compare with what you gain by following Christ. Jesus said this, Matthew 19, 29, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. What Jesus is saying is that nothing you give up for the gospel will ever be a loss to you. But Jesus himself will multiply it back to you. Moses gave us that same example. Hebrews eleven twenty four says, By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. I mean, he gave up tremendous wealth. I mean, modern day context, it'd be like, how many of you would like to be the son of Jeffrey Bezos? Like, you're going to inherit Amazon kingdom. I mean, how many of you, like, Elon Musk, you want to inherit all of Tesla, all the stock, all the wealth? Yeah, we would. But not just theoretically, Moses actually gave it up. He refused to be treated, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He could have inherited more wealth than we could imagine. But look at verse 25. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short season. Look at verse 26. He regarded, one translation says he considered. He like put it on a scale. He weighed out the options. He, he considered disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than all the treasures of Egypt because he was looking forward to his reward. Or in the words of the old hymn, I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather have Jesus than riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or land. I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hands. I could be the king of a vast domain, but I'd be held in sin's dead sway. No, I'd rather have Jesus than anything that this world affords today. Amen. Well, Father, we thank you.